May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Veils, faces, and ushers. Oh my. And what a most distressful situation we find ourselves in. Distressful indeed, for the veils are dark, the faces are many, and are ever so contrary. And the ushers, the ushers, well, to speak frankly about the matter, they're big babies. They've scarcely learned the father's voice, and now they must grow up and serve as escorts and servants. They hardly know what kind of service they're attending, let alone how to conduct and carry themselves while they're serving at it. And the veils, well, those wearing them can hardly see anything. How could they ever know who their bridegroom is so as to present themselves before him and have their veils removed? How will they know that whoever is speaking to them is from him or is him after all? And the faces behind the veils, vast in number, as the waters of the sea, all of them blinded by the veil in the dark, and alone without a betrothed to remove them of their fallen state. Without a betrothed, for they've, they've either rejected the one who would have them, or they just don't believe who he really is. Which gets us back to the ushers. We, me and myself included here, I'm not going to get out of trouble there, uh, we are the big babies. We are those big babies. Or at least we've all been there. Understand there's maturity. We have already been bonded with the task, even as infants, to teach those veiled individuals who the Savior is, what he's done for them, and what he will continue to do for them. We have the task of escorting them by the word of God to Jesus, reasoning with them on his behalf, and convincing them that it truly is he who should be their betrothed. The only problem is that black veil. I couldn't get black. Sorry, there was no black in the, uh, the quilter's cabinet so, um, for the children's message. But um, the black veil, I mean, who, who put that there? Why is there a veil? Not appropriate for a wedding at all. We don't wear black to a wedding. And most, of, most everybody doesn't wear a veil. Only one wears the veil at a wedding. So anyway, it's like they're grieving at their own funeral. But such is not the will of God. For unto life has he brought them into this fallen world, and he takes no pleasure in their death. So our task is great. And to complicate matters even worse... We are still learning, as these big babies, how to walk and how to talk. And sometimes we lose our way, just like little children who aren't sure about where they're going. And sometimes the baby talk is confusing to those who are behind the veils. Can they trust us? Things just don't make sense. We have the temptation to just give up. And were it not for the leading of the Holy Spirit and the nurturing of God's word, we might just do so and give up. Oh, and the veiled people, by the way, 
don't like kids. And they don't like our dad, our heavenly father. It's like they just won't listen. And they're mean about it even. Dear believers in our Lord Jesus Christ and family of God, I have an announcement to make. Jesus has died on the cross for your sins and mine, and he is alive today. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. This is the message that we need to hear every day, a message that we need to both know inside and out and share. For in it, Christ removes the veil, the maiden finds her bridegroom, and we all find our way to the wedding feast in the land of promise. Jesus Christ is alive. But what does this mean? And how does that impact us when we're face to face with an unbelieving coworker who is adamant against God and doesn't want to hear anything of it? Brothers and sisters, this is not a new problem. And we would be wise to consult the scriptures in finding our solution our confidence for the task at hand. So then let's go to it. We know that we are in good company with Paul and the prophets. Paul writes, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So Paul and Isaiah are familiar with rejection, just like you if you've shared the gospel message a time or two. Paul and the prophets have preached but their preaching has fallen on deaf ears, darkened eyes, and hardened hearts. They hear, but they don't understand. They see, but they don't perceive, and they just won't believe. And that's to be expected. In fact, even we, before our veils were removed in Christ, were in the same situation. Paul writes in Romans 8, starting in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh is our fallen state. That is, our corrupted state, our corrupted nature. Have you ever heard someone say, well, we're only human, right? Um, this is an admission that the natural form of error built into the human condition, um, that we all make mistakes, or that we can't all be perfect, we all know that per perfection is an unreal expectation because people just can't seem to stop doing bad stuff. So forcing them to be perfect isn't really, um, isn't really um, realistic. So um, including you and me, this, we're, all, we're all bound to this nature. Even when we're Christians, this nature clings to us. But the sticky part, because people will, will say, well, yeah, everybody knows this. The sticky part is when you start calling the nature sinful. 
So now we're not just making mistakes, but we're accountable to God and are wrongfully acting against him by our very natural inclination. Paul says that this is the reality. We just quoted it before. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the nature is against God, not just making mistakes. But how is it against God? It won't submit to God's law. It can't. So even if you tell that nature or your coworker or someone who does not believe, even if you tell them the nature of the law and the goodness of God, his holiness and perfection, they won't submit, that nature won't submit to that goodness and that law. It won't stop being angry, for that anger can be justified. It won't stop its adultery, for it is entitled to love. It won't stop stepping on his or her fellow man for to each his own and survival of the fittest. It won't listen to and follow his or her parents because, well, mom and dad just don't understand my situation. They don't understand me. It won't stop stealing, won't stop saying lies about God's name, won't stop serving other things beside the creator God, and certainly will not stop to worship this so-called creator. Hostile. Hostile in mind and in nature. It won't stop resisting because it can't. It's no wonder they don't believe you when you share the gospel when they're so opposed to God's holiness. It makes them look bad. No wonder they reject God and set up their own form of righteousness. As Paul says in Romans 10.3, but they're not just hardened in nature, in heart and mind. No, they also can't understand. Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So they are hardened to God, yes, but they also think that what you're saying is useless. Folly to them. In fact, those who are in the natural human state can't even understand anything spiritual that you're trying to tell them. They're like parrots at best. They hear, they repeat. They can't comprehend or understand so as to put two and two together or two plus 256.325 if parrots can do simple math. So just to... Um, it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up to them. There's too many questions. It's too complicated. Why doesn't God, maybe you've heard this a time or two, why doesn't God just fix it? Be done with it. End of story. Foolishness to them. Foolishness. But just in case we're tempted to despair, take a deep breath, there is hope. God has provided a means of escape, a way of salvation from this deep, dark state, even if they or we in our sinful nature, can't understand it and are hardened against it. Word and water, body and blood. Bread and wine for the believer to keep us in the faith and water and word for the unbeliever to introduce them into the faith. To pull from 1 John verses 7 and 8, 
For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. And in verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So what testifies to eternal life in the Son? The spirit of truth, the water, where he fulfilled all the righteousness there is, included in our baptism, and the blood, the crucifixion. But we have already said that they have no regard for righteousness in God's sight, and they can't understand the spirit of truth. Where are you going with this, Christopher? That's what my mom might say to me. I'm going to the cross. All testify to the cross. The simple truth that it was, that it happened. It happened for all to see. This is where the incarnation meets the fallen man. This is the beginning for them. It happened. Our common ground of faith that cannot be covered up. Only from this point can they understand anything else, anything spiritual. This is where the spiritual meets the unspiritual. The God of the ages in one man meets the ear of the fallen heart of man. Jesus writes undeniable history in his own blood. And so Paul continues on in Romans 10, verse 17, after quoting Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us, he says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Which word of Christ? Which one? What word should they hear to inspire their faith? The gospel, preached by those sent by God, you and me. In the preceding verses, Paul says, How then will they call on him whom they have not heard? And how are they to believe in whom they have never and how are to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The feet that share the good news are beautiful. Amen. And what is that good news? That Christ has died for the sins of all men, and that he rose again from the dead and appeared to many witnesses, including all of his disciples. This is the good news that saves. But we must share that good news faithfully, and sometimes it takes a bit of preparation. Like knowing about Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian who wrote about Christ's crucifixion. You see, Paul was dealing with current events. Everybody knew this thing happened in Jerusalem. And you, you, could, you could cherry pick off of news stories. You could converse with people who were there. But we're 2,000 years removed. It's a little different. But, so we must return to 80, 30, that 8033 baseline. But take heart, it is possible. History is on our side. And we don't have time to, to go into a whole teaching on... Um, the reality and the historicity of the crucifixion and the resurrection this morning, but history is on our side, and once we have that common ground of the history of the cross, we can gain ground from there. 
But that's the starting point. On to Christ's resurrection and his righteousness for those who are in him and the sacrifice that was made to atone for all of our sins. One small step by another, and it depends on the person. It could be big steps. If you're like me, it just seems like everybody I encounter is a rock. <laughs> you can't, can't get the words through. Um, but that is to be expected. But Paul's source of confidence and boldness stems from the incarnation. This is why, in the face of rejection, time and time again, he's not ashamed to tell them and reason with them about the occurrence of the cross and its significance for them. For to Paul, the goal is their faith, which comes from hearing him tell of the cross, and the prize is their salvation, which comes from Christ, as the gospel message falls finally on hearts of faith. Dear friends, don't give up. Hear the gospel message for you and share about the cross to others. Paul writes, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So as they accept the history of the cross and as they accept the whole truth that Christ has died and has been raised, they learn to believe what Christ has done for all. And the truth is revealed to them that in him, in Christ, in Jesus, they are given a righteous standing in God's sight that comes from Jesus' own perfect righteousness, as we learned last week, not their own, not their own righteousness. And in that pure, in the justification of their heart and their mind before God, in that belief, there are at that point made ready by that hearing of the gospel to trust in Christ for their eternal life and call on his name for salvation. It works through the hearing of the gospel. Paul writes, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In this word, ushers are made ready for their task. Veils are removed in shouts of joy and tears of love. And faces are at long last showered in the light of hope. No matter what they once believed about God, no matter which way of living they used to think was right. Remember, we give no regard for the flesh. Now they are in love. Now they're a new creation. Now they follow Christ. Now they live for him. Second Corinthians, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And as surely as we love and follow him, they will too.
They will too. Only let us minister in the continuing spirit of love and kindness towards one another, in an attitude of humility, an attitude of self-sacrifice and forgiveness, just as Christ does, hearing the words of forgiveness. Day by day, Sunday after Sunday, you are forgiven. And one final thing. What makes the faith to trust God finally happen? When do they believe? As we preach the gospel, when does the faith actually occur? It's impossible to tell because it's a miracle of the Father, a gift of God. Recall our gospel lesson. No one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And finally, from 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to temper with God's word, tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And friends, what a beautiful face he has. What love for us. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. We confess with the words of the Apostles' Creed, our common confession. May you please stand.